So anyway, um, so we're talking about circumstances. You know, that's part of trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not on your own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. So there's circumstances come in life. So we already looked at um, three of the uh, possible uh, reasons for circumstances. One is to reveal our heart. Uh, sometimes uh, we fool ourselves about what's going on inside and sometimes God will bring circumstances along in our life to reveal what's going on in our heart and that's really the issue that we have to deal with. It also uh, reveals our weakness. Sometimes we become so self-sufficient, so smug. Uh, sometimes we need to be made aware of our, our own personal weakness and that uh, the Lord is indeed our strength and that we go to Him. It also shows our uh, reveals our need and that need of course is man should not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God so we go we so we learn to go to God's word for wise counsel we learn to go to God's word uh, for our sustenance as we live this life on earth and now I didn't get a chance to get to our fourth point and the fourth point as far as circumstances are concerned is to teach us to war I originally put in my notes, learn us to war, but I don't think that's, that's good English either. So teach us to war. So if you would, please turn to Judges chapter 2. Uh, Judges chapter 2. And uh, we'll take a look at uh, this uh, fourth point as far as our circumstances are concerned. I think we all understand, know the story here, familiar with the story that the children of Israel had been led into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. They had crossed the Jordan River. They had taken, begun the campaign of taking possession of the promised land. But uh, the Lord, by the time we got around to Judges chapter 2, the Lord had a, um, an issue with the children of Israel who uh, often proved to be a stiff-necked and a vacillating people in their, in their loyalties to the Lord. And we read here in Judges chapter 2, beginning with verse 20, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died that through them I may prove Israel so there's a reason for circumstances whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 3, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before knew nothing thereof. So, Sadly, many, uh, many of God's people are kind of like these folks here in this, in this passage. You know, I, I've heard pastors and preachers use this passage uh, to warn of the second generation believers. You know, the kids, uh, the boys and girls who are raised up in Christian, good Christian homes. And, uh, you know, the faith of mom and dad is very strong. Mom and dad are very active in the church. And so the kids grow up automatically thinking that they're Christians too because mom and dad are Christians. 
Uh, they're involved in all the church activities. They're involved in all the things that mom and dad are involved in. Uh, they're Sunday school, whatever. So they're raised up in church. And so they believe that because mom and dad were Christian, because they've been going to church, then that automatically makes them a Christian, right? Kind of like osmosis. Well, it doesn't happen that way, does it? No, they have to make a personal decision on their own whether to believe in Jesus Christ. And they often say that a second-generation Christian is almost as hard to reach as, um, you know, as a family member or other folks. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But there's also believers themselves who aren't necessarily raised in a second-generation home. They start out well, right? They start out well. They experience victories in their life, but something happens. And so they just kind of take a step or two back and they digress in their walk. Uh, where at one time they were zealous for the things of God and now they're not so much. So what I really want to stress here in regards to circumstances, in regards to trusting in the Lord with all of our heart, and is this. Knowing and obeying the will of God cannot be a half-hearted effort on our part. Knowing and obeying the will of God cannot be a half-hearted effort on our part. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of folks um, exist in their relationship with God. It's, it's a, it's a half-hearted part, half-hearted effort on our part. Uh, hey, I'm guilty of that myself. I've been there. I've done that, you know. Um, so you got to be careful about, about that. That's what happened with the children of Israel. You know, they experienced all these victories. You know, they got possession of all this land, but yet they didn't take the whole land like they were supposed to. They weren't supposed to take the whole land. So it was kind of a, a half-hearted effort on their part. You know, God's word and God's will for our lives should never be viewed as a hobby or as uh, something we profess on Sundays and only practice when we're around other believers. You know, trusting in the Lord, it, it, you know, we don't do it because we feel like it. We don't do it because it's convenient. What is it? It's a, it's a life. It's, it's, it's your life. He's your life. He's your life. Uh, it says here in Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. Acknowledge him. I, I, I look this word up, acknowledge, like I always do. I get my strongs out, and I like to trace these things down for my own personal edification. And it's interesting, two things I want to say about acknowledge. The word acknowledge in the Bible is associated with intimacy. A closeness of a relationship, a familiarity of fellowship, an understanding of our responsibility to another. The first mention of the word um, in the Hebrew language, and you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar or anything like that, it's just something I like to do. But the first mention of this word translated acknowledge here in Proverbs uh, 3.6 in the Hebrew language is found in Genesis 4.1 where it says, And Adam knew... She's my biggest critic. <laughs> Adam knew 
Eve his wife. The word new, same Hebrew word as acknowledge, found here in Proverbs 3, 3 6. This is intimate communion. This is intimate communion. This is, a, this is an intimate relationship with another. This is not only the physical manifestation of love between a couple, but it also includes that emotional connection, that mental connection, that intimacy between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. The idea of what the writer of Proverbs is conveying uh, concerning our trusting in the Lord with all our hearts is this kind of intimacy that we have with our Savior, with our Lord. Uh, this kind of bond of both body, mind, and spirit with the Lord. That's acknowledging God. That's acknowledging God. That's why I said, you know, we can't treat this as a hobby or something convenient. I mean, what if you treated your marriage to your husband or to your wife as, as, as a hobby? You know, something that you only wanted to participate in when it suited you. What kind of marriage would that be? Not very good. Not a very good marriage. Um, when Jesus was asked the question, you know, what is the greatest commandment to observe? Jesus said the first of all commandments is hear O Israel the Lord our God is one Lord and thou shalt love the Lord thy God whenever you feel like it. It's not what he said was it? No he said with all thy heart, with all thy soul with all thy mind with all of thy strength what does that tell me? That means I need to be all in with this relationship with God. I need to be all in this relationship with God. Have you ever found yourself in a relationship of unrequited love? Where the person that you have a relationship with, you, you love them and you care for them, you have compassion for them, you have affection for them, but yet you don't get anything in return? That's not a very good relationship. Not a very good relationship. And unfortunately... I think there's a lot of God's people who treat God that very same way. There's more of an expectation of God loving me <laughs> rather than me loving God. You know? What does it first John say? We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. But so many of us live our relationship with God as, a, as an unrequited love. We don't reciprocate that love to God. Do you think you can out-love God? No, we can't. But that doesn't mean we don't love God. We don't use that as an excuse to, to love God. So a lot of folks say they have this. They live their day-to-day -day lives as though God doesn't have any part in it until some adversity, some affliction, some need shows up and then all of a sudden that relationship with God is very, very important. But why is that? Well, it's kind of selfish, isn't it? God, you got to come through for me. You say you love me, you got to come for, come through for me. So it's kind of a selfish, a selfish love. Again, that's why I say we ha we can't treat this relationship, you know, as far as a hobby or or just a. a 
you know, a, a thing that uh, is convenient for us. You know, life on this earth is, is, is too hard and too dangerous for us as believers to treat God in that way. It, it just is. It just is. Uh, we shouldn't treat God as a, as, a, as a curiosity or a hobby. We shouldn't treat you know, knowledge of God's word as you know, to wow your friends because, boy, you can quote a lot of verses. You know, quote a lot of verses. You know, for us, the word of God goes beyond trivia. We have a game at my house, uh, Bible trivia. Kind of like, what is that, trivia pursuit? Where it asks questions, it's got all these categories, and it's got questions, and so it'll ask a question, you got to tell where the... You know who the character is, a verse. Well, we played this game years ago with a, a fella and his wife, and um, this guy scored the highest. I mean, he was he was as sharp as a tack, and he scored the highest as far as his knowledge of the Bible is concerned. He answered all the questions. All, I mean, he did. But the man's personal life was a train wreck. The man's personal life was a train wreck. He was a habitual liar. He, he was cheating on his wife. He was indolent on the job. He was prideful. I mean, he, he, he possessed a lot of qualities that were not very Christ-like, were apparent to everybody else, but not apparent to guess who? <laughs> Himself. But he had all this knowledge. He had all this knowledge of the Bible, and he could score really well in this Bible trivia game. But you know what? His attitude toward the Word of God was purely a cerebral textbook attitude. And that was reflected in his life. He didn't honor God. He knew a lot, but he didn't honor God. Like 2 Timothy 3.7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. He knew a lot, but he never knew God. He never came to the place where he knew God. One man wrote, um, God's word and God's will is not just a curiosity for us to study. It's more than answering the questions in the back of a booklet. They are the words of eternal life for us to believe and obey. God is not obligated to reveal his will to anyone who are unwilling to obey it. I think there's a lot of truth to that. To acknowledge God in all our ways is to commit ourselves totally to him. And when we do that... That teaches us to war in this dangerous world we live in. We need to commit ourselves totally to God, as in a marriage relationship. Right? What does it say in the vows? To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. We are wed, wed to the Lord Jesus Christ, are we not? Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. We are wed to Christ. What kind of spouse are we? What kind of spouse am I? I'm not a very good one sometimes. And something else, folks. He doesn't take our name. We take his name. 
All right? He doesn't take our name. We take his name. Acts 11.26, And when he had found him, he brought, them, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So we, we take his name. He doesn't take our name. And there's none of this hyphenated name business with the Lord like there is in the world. Yet, that's the way we treat God sometimes. We like to hyphenate our name in there. And that's why we have all these issues, all these, we wrestle with the flesh. Galatians 5.16, this I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. So many of us want the benefits of the new nature, but we hyphenate it with the fleshly nature. We've got to be all in. If we desire to benefit from God's infinite wisdom, as he teaches us to war in this dangerous world, if we want God's direction and leading in our situations as we're out on that battlefield called life, if we want God's aid in the midst of our circumstances, if we want to hear that Calvary bugle coming up over the rise, then we've got to be all in with God. We must commit all of our ways to God. 1 Chronicles 16.11 says, Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. This word seek also means to stretch as if reaching for something. As if reaching for something. So, we stretch out and we pull that dusty old Bible off the bookshelf. <laughs> And we open it up to seek what God has for us in his word. To seek what God has for us in his word. To pray about it, to meditate on it, to apply it. G. Campbell Morgan, a preacher of the 19th century, once said, The Lord God will direct our paths, not always on easy or pleasant paths, but always the right paths. Not always in the paths that I would have chosen for myself, but always paths, paths that lead me to my greatest good. Paths that may lead me through mist and misery, mystery, battles and bruising, but paths that reveal, that reveal himself glorious and the captain of my salvation. So we see the two things that we saw earlier. God's glory and our good. As he teaches us to war as he teaches us to war. Uh, quite frankly, only a fool would walk through this dangerous life unprepared and unarmed. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I had a dear friend tell me one time, he said, Brother Jeff, he said, bad things are going to happen in life. People are going to disappoint us and let us down, and God forbid we may do the same to others. This is why it is so important to keep the edge of our sword sharp at all times. How sharp is your sword? It's the only offensive weapon we have. All the other 
pieces of the armor that Ephesians 6, 14 through 17 talks about, that's all defensive weapons. Helmet, shield, breastplate. The sword is the only offensive weapon. The sword and the word and prayer is the only offensive weapon that we have to use in this dangerous life we live. And for the sword to stay sharp in our life, we've got to take hold of that sword and don't let it go. We've got to read it, meditate on it. We have to apply it. We have to obey it. We have to trust it in spite of the circumstances in life. So we need to get a firm hold on God's word in the midst of our circumstances because your very life depends on it. It really does. And I don't think a lot of believers understand that or even appreciate that. So, do you think Jesus Christ takes his union with us serious? Do you? I was told that I wasn't going to get through here. But guess what? I am. I want to talk about the blessings. We talked about the circumstances, so I want to start talking about the blessings. The blessings and the results from trusting in the Lord. I still want to talk about acknowledging acknowledging the Lord. There's a second part to this I want to talk about. But yes, the Lord Jesus Christ takes very serious his union with his people. And we should do the same. We should do the same. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna break all this down, but I wrote this up here. This is something that I came across years ago. It's just been a blessing to me. Six types illustrating our union with Christ. The first type is Christ is the head. He's the head of the body. He's the head of the church. What does that make us? We're his body, right? If we sever the head off of our body, what's going to happen? So that's pretty important union, isn't it? That's how important that union is with the Lord. He is the head, we are the body. Christ is the foundation. So this first one, Christ is the head, that speaks of a living union. That's a living union. There is a living union with, with Christ as our head and we are his body. That's not an abstract concept. That's not just an idea. That's not just a doctrine of the church. That's a living reality. The second one, Christ is the foundation. We are his building. That's an ever that's a lasting union. Right? A lasting union. What good does it do to build a building on the sand? No good. But if that building is built on a good, solid foundation, chances are that building's going to stand, isn't it? Well, Christ is our foundation. Christ is the vine. We are his branches. That's a fruitful union. God's will, God's desire is that we bear fruit. So that's a fruitful union. Then we have Christ as the firstborn. We are his brethren. That's a joint heir union. That means whatever Christ has, we also have. Let that sink in for a bit. What Christ has, we also have. 
Christ is our great shepherd. We are his sheep. That's a personal union. Just like a shepherd watches over his flock. That's a personal union. And then the final one, Christ is the bridegroom, we are his bride. That's a loving union. That's a loving union. So is Christ serious about his union with his people? You better believe it. You better believe it. And for those of us who acknowledge this union, for those who acknowledge the Lord in all of, those, all of their ways, who refuse to live their willful, hyphenated, spirit-hyphenated flesh lives, take on his name as their name, then God promises that he will direct their paths. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not on thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So how, how does the Lord do that? How does he do that? And that's what I want to wrap up the study about the biblical value of trusting in the Lord. I want to present to you 12, 12 blessings of God's directing in your life. All right? But first, <laughs> there's two prerequisites, two prerequisites to God's directing. And we've already talked about these two things. But I keep repeating these two things because they're so important. Trust and acknowledge. Two simple prerequisites. Trust and acknowledge. First one, trust. Psalms 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Christ our shepherd. Personal. 2 Samuel 22, 1, verses 1 through 3. And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all of his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God is my rock and him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior. Thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. That seems to be one of the questions we, we confronted. So shall I be saved from my enemies. I read these two passages because in these two passages we have the essential elements of trust. What we read here in David's song and in, 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 uh, in the Psalms is that he has a strong confidence in another. That's what trust is. Having a strong confidence in another. And this confidence that David had in God, this trust that David had in God, gave David a sense of security and safety. A faith that relieved him of care and worry and anxiety. The picturesque language David uses gives the expression of his trust. He likens God to a shepherd and a provider. A rock, a fortress, a shield, a high tower, a place of refuge. 
He ascribed to God the role of deliverer and savior and provider and provider. And David expresses his esteem for God, saying that he was what? Worthy to be praised. These are words of someone who has passed through the fire of affliction. These are words of someone who has tested God and God has proved himself faithful. These are words of a person who's been there. That's why, that's why this is written. Because this, written, this, this book is written filled with testimonies of people who have been there and done that. They're not just stories to tell your kids. 2 Timothy 1.12 for the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul, like David, was another saint who went through the fire, isn't he? He's another saint that had gone through the fire of persecution and affliction. But yet, what does he say here? He says, I am full, I am persuaded. I am he says, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That's confidence. That's confidence. Our faith is measured by our confidence in another. Let me say that again. Our faith is measured by our confidence in another and it is this measure of confidence in another that will determine the type of walk you will have. How confident are we in God? That's why the biblical value of trusting in the Lord is so, so vital. It's such a critical value for us to nurture and exercise, to allow it to be refined through our circumstances. Because you remember what I said a long time ago, that faith is the chief commodity of heaven. God looks at your faith as though, he, as, though, as though it's pure gold. According to 1 Peter chapter 1. Both David and Paul and others in God's word, those folks that we recognize as heroes of the faith, <laughs> why do we call them heroes of the faith? Because of their confidence in God and what God said. Now, did they stumble? Did they fail? Did they sin? Yep, just like you and me. But what separated these individuals from the rest was their confidence, their faith in what God had told them, what God had promised them, what God had commanded them. And it was their faith in God in spite of their own weakness, in spite of their own flaws, in spite of their own imperfect heart. It was their confidence in God that set them apart that made the difference. That made the difference. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him. Do you want to please God? Trust him. Trust him. 
Faith is not some pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. Faith is both practical and practicable. I don't even know if that's a word. You can practice your faith, folks. You can exercise your faith. So trust, that's the first prerequisite. The second is acknowledge. Confidently persuaded. The next one is acknowledge. I've talked a little bit about acknowledge. It says, in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct, the, the, uh, direct thy paths. I want to give you another um, facet of this word acknowledge. Like you hold up a gym. It's got all the different facets. Here's another facet. Turn to Deuteronomy 21, verses 16 through 17. Let me give you a, another facet of this word acknowledge. Something for us to, to build our uh, understanding on in regards to applying this uh, to our lives. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, this is the first time you'll find the English word acknowledge found in your Bible. That's one of the Bible study principles is first mentioned. And really the scenario is quite simple to understand. Verse 16, Then it shall be when he maketh his sons to inherit that which he hath, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. Verse 17, But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn, by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. So, so the scenario is pretty simple. A man marries two wives. He loves the one more than he loves the other. The one that he doesn't love is the first one who gives him a son. So that's his firstborn son. And the one he does love gives him a son, and that's his secondborn son. What God is commanding here is that the man does not play favorites towards the second son, but he gives the first son his due, his right, in regards to the inheritance. In regards to the inheritance. That's simply what we do when we acknowledge God. We give to him what is rightfully due to him. It's a simple, simple truth, but sometimes we wrestle with that. Sometimes we wrestle with that. We give to the Lord his rightful place and his rightful portion in our life, and we don't play favorites. Now, I don't know about you folks, but I play favorites sometimes. And you know who my favorite is? It's me. It's me. Me, myself, and I. Those are the three most important people to me. <laughs> sometimes. Now, am I the only one? No. Okay, good. We often favor our way over God's way. We often favor God's will over our will. Remember when Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done? We kind of flip that around sometimes, don't we? Not your will, but mine be done. It all depends on the circumstance. We live in a me-first culture. 
We live in a culture that promotes caring and loving oneself as a priority. That's right. I mean, listen to the commercials. Listen to the, to the programs. Listen to the news. Read some of these articles. It's always, always me being promoted, always I being, propo- being promoted, caring for oneself, loving one's, for oneself as a priority. Now, don't get me wrong, we need to take care of ourselves. We need to stay healthy. You know, we need to stay emotionally balanced. We need to stay mentally sharp. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But the issue is self-love. That's what's being preached. That's what's being promoted. It's so subtle. It's so subtle, but it's out there, and you know it is. This self-caring has become such a priority that it's even taught you do it at the exclusion and expense of others. It's there. It's there. One uh, self-love guru begins their day with self-affirmation. They write, care for and love yourself the way you want others to. It starts with me, so I look in the mirror and give myself at least five compliments a day. Now they do this, why? So that people would compliment them? That's what she said. Care for and love yourself the way you want others to. Now, who's the focus here? They are. Me. Me. I don't know how to answer that, me. Or you. <laughs> yeah. I know what to Myself. <laughs> now, doesn't that sound backwards? So. Well, of course it does to us, because we know the right way, don't we? That's where the sword comes in to teach you how to war. Because we know what the truth says. We know what Jesus says. Jesus said, Matthew 7, 12, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, 39, And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Luke 6, 30-33, Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. As ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what think have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what think have ye? For sinners also do even the same. So that's putting others first. Loving others first. Doing unto others first. And then Jesus' promises, then they'll reciprocate. If they have any decency about them. Not they don't always do that. This, this message of self-love, where do you think that originates? Remember the two wisdoms we talked about? The wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. Do you think that self-love message is the wisdom from above? Again, this is where the teaching us to war comes in. Knowing what the sword says. Because that kind of stuff gets in your head. It's 
sometimes without even realizing it. So if you got that sword sharp, when that shows up, then that sword can divide what's being said and reveal what it's really saying. Does that make sense? Yeah, what is, who's being glorified here in this self-love message? Is it God? He's not even involved, is he? Not even involved. No, it's, it's, it's the self. And that's what the wisdom from uh, below does. It turns the wisdom from above topsy-turvy. Topsy-turvy. What is the proper order? Anybody want to give me the proper order? It's not a trick question. There you go. Jesus, others, then self. That's the proper order. That's the proper order. I knew you guys knew that. What time do I have here? Okay. <laughs> so, acknowledging God is giving him his rightful due. Um, who owns you? God. You own yourself? That's what the world will tell you. Who owns us? Jesus does. We don't like, the flesh doesn't like that own us part, does it? But it's good. I'm glad Jesus owned me. Jesus has bought the deed of ownership. He has bought the deed of ownership. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I'm glad Jesus owns me. I'm glad that Jesus bought me, paid the price for me. Ephesians 1, 13-14 In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession on the praise of his glory. He's not only bought me, he's sealed me, and he's taken up residence in me. Praise God! Praise God! I don't take offense of that. He owns me. I'm glad he owns me. I'm glad he owns me. He sealed me. That's his guarantee. That's his guarantee. Alternative, the devil owns me. It's not very good. No, yeah. If the devil owns you, you're in trouble. Bad shape. Yeah, in bad shape. This sealing. That's pretty important. You know, the Word of God talks about sealing. Turn to Jeremiah 32. I might have time to go through this. Jeremiah chapter 32. I want to I show you what the Bible has to say about sealing. Three things about sealing. You guys may, I may have already taught you this. This is something that um, uh, I came across years ago. I can't remember if somebody showed it to me or was it just through a process of study, but I thought it was great. Jeremiah 32, 9. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son that was in Anathoth, 
and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver, and I've subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money and the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, that which was open, and that which was open, and I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Maaseah, in the sight of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed, and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may continue many days. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in the land. So what was going on here historically is that Babylon's armies had marched into the, into the land. They were defeating and taking over the cities. Uh, Jerusalem and just two other cities were the only ones remaining. They were now uh, being uh, laid siege to by ba uh, Babylonian army. So essentially when uh, Jeremiah purchased this land from his uncle's uh, son, uh, the land was already being trod upon by Babylonian soldiers. So business-wise, it didn't really make much sense, but there's a reason for this. This was proof from God to his people that they would come back to the land and repossess the land. And in the millennial kingdom, I believe Jeremiah is going to say, hey, that piece of ground is mine. I purchased that. So Jeremiah is going to have that piece of land in the millennial kingdom. That's, that's what I believe. But anyway, what I want to talk about as far as the sealing and what, how it applies to us is number one, sealing makes for a finished and legal transaction. Sealing makes for a finished and legal transaction. Jeremiah paid the acceptable price, purchased the field, and sealed the deal before witnesses. Jesus Christ has done the same thing. He's purchased us with his blood and he has sealed us, making it legal by the presence of his Holy Spirit. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. Number two, sealing makes for evidence of ownership. Evidence for ownership. The sealed document was Jeremiah's evidence deed of ownership same thing is true with us 2 Timothy 2.19 nevertheless the foundation of God standeth sure having this seal the Lord knoweth them that are his and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity the Holy Spirit sealing on our life is proof evidence of ownership we belong to him we belong to him you can't undo that you cannot undo that. What does that mean, folks? There is no loss of salvation. Amen. That's pretty powerful, guys. Then sealing ensures the security of the transaction. The security of the transaction. Judah and Jerusalem were being surrounded and engulfed by the Babylonian army. Jerusalem was under siege, but yet the purchase of this field, in light of the current circumstances, it, it appeared ridiculous, it appeared unwise, but God had this promise. 
Jeremiah, you're going to possess that land. In the millennial kingdom, I believe Jeremiah is going to possess that land. We are God's purchased possession. We are secure. We are secure. That should rejoice your heart. Amen. That should rejoice your heart. You see, the believer has the very same assurance of inheritance that Jeremiah has. Very same assurance. Remember what I said about joint heirs? Christ the firstborn, we are, his, we are joint heirs with Christ. We are an assured an inheritance. That just flutters my heart a little bit. It just does. Amen. That's how serious he takes this union. That's how serious we must take this union. So to sum it up, what I'm trying to say is that we are purchased possession of our Savior. Our life is not our own. So when we acknowledge the Lord in all our ways, what are we doing? We are simply giving him what is rightfully his. Rightfully his. Much like the wife is the husband's and the husband's is the wife, we identify with Christ. Our love is not based on superficial self-affirmation quotes, <laughs> but it's based upon the union that we have with Jesus Christ in our life. His love is proven to us how? By the cross of Christ. We have the sealing, the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are his beloved. Therefore, what is preventing us from giving him his rightful due? That's where we hyphenate. We need to stop hyphenating. <laughs> I don't even know if that's correct to say it that way. I always tell you to hydrate. I say stop hyphenating. <laughs> And we do this by acknowledging him in all our ways. All our ways. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable in God, which is a reasonable service. Reasonable service simply means you give what's, what's, what's due. It makes perfect sense. How else, how, how other way would you live your life? For the one, for the one who sacrifices all for us, it's so reasonable that we would do that in return. That's also an act of faith to be exercised. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus, right? Trust. Being fully persuaded, confident, what he has accomplished for us on the cross. So walk ye in him. Acknowledge him. Give him his rightful do. Give him his rightful due. So, with all of that, that sets it up, and I will begin teaching on the 12 blessings of trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning out on your own understanding. And all I ways acknowledge him. And I'll start that next week. Any questions or comments? Okay, so let's go ahead and, and we'll close out in prayer. And JB, would you be comfortable in closing out in prayer?
Thank you.